Hi folk and welcome to episode 7 of Let's Hope the Weather Holds where I speak to Johan Hutton, a hard news conflict war photographer about his experience with post-traumatic stress disorder. I threw in uh, quite a bit of, of my own experiences in there too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I was a bit less prepared to speak about it than, than Johan was, but it's in there. Have a listen and what a rad chat to have with the man. Follow him on J. Uh, on Instagram, but all the details will be in either my Instagram account or the profile. Anyways, I hope you enjoy the talk. Let's go. Martin, welcome to Let's Hope the Weather Holds. Uh, yeah, thanks for, for talking to me, man. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Awesome. So today we're talking PTSD. It was, it was, uh, when I looked at your email address, it was quite, uh, uh, funny. Well, not funny, but yeah, funny. Um, cause your, your email address is info or Johan at, uh, PTSD SA. And that's a pretty legit email address. <laughs> no one can say that but PTSD as their email address. So um, that's just one thing you've got above other people. But anyways, I, I, I digress. Um, like we discussed, I, I just thought I was going to talk a bit about um, how anxiety and, and depression like played a role in, in my life. Um, sure. Because in essence, the conversation is, um, is about that. And then about your journey with it through photojournalism and, and the organization you started. But I think putting putting uh, my own side on the table is is worthwhile because it's a it's a give and take. So, and we'll see how much I divulge. It, it will all depend. <laughs> so it's weird, man. Like if I think back over my life, I don't think there's a time where I didn't have anxiety, right? If I like, I'm talking like years back. I'm 41 now, and then I really think, and there probably was a time I didn't, but. Um, when when I was a kid, about seven or eight, we moved to South America, uh, to Paraguay. My father was a military attaché. And I picked up a stomach parasite there that it took the doctors like four or five years to figure out what was wrong with me. Wow. And it was just weird. Like always when we traveled, I was really ill. And I started making this association in my mind with travel equals ill. And I really started hating going places. But then the weird thing is I'm also like adventurous. So you even later in life, I mean, it almost like only really hit me hard when I was in my 20s. But even later in life, like before we organized a rock climbing trip or something, I would like have a complete meltdown. Not a complete meltdown, but I would get like really anxious beforehand. And building this thing in your head, um, you know, what's, what, you know, what's going to happen? How am I going to feel all these things? But that's stuff that came from my past. And I'm meeting more and more people that have all these issues. And I don't know if issues is the, the correct word to use. But anyways, feel free to correct me <laughs> now or later. Whatever. Issues, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to say issues. Guys, you can, you can hit me up on Instagram and, and, and batter me for the wrong terminology if you want. Um, but I was lucky that I'm a extrovert so i talk about stuff um and and i also actively looked for for help um but like all this mixed in with like weird stuff like when i was um 16 i started smoking pot and 
like a lot of things and and as we discussed even even photojournalism you're in these shit situations mm-hmm. but it's a rush you know so i started smoking a, a, a weed not a lot because i'm a complete lightweight like two hits and i'm gone for like five hours <laughs> and, and um uh i just remember when i stopped because at 21 was the last time i i smoked weed it really became bad like the panic attacks like became really bad and if you speak to a lot of people in south africa this stuff is laced with acid man the experiences people have is not weed like i spoke to someone uh here in new zealand who's from south africa and they once had to call the the ambulance on some friend of them that went completely berserk on weed and the ambulance man was just like paramedic was like "Mm, no dude whatever was in there you know so so i had this life where i dealt with anxiety and i also had to deal with the fact that my personality wants to go out there and like do cool stuff you know in between all this anxiety i was like rock climbing and going for all these crazy adventures and but you live life but you're just like dealing with the stuff and um because of um and and even this year, man, like um, it it's caused like issues. Uh, how I like to see, let's say, my own mortality and stuff. This year alone, I've like shoulder operation, been for stitches. Well, I mean, I do stuff that give me stitches, <laughs> so, and and just um uh like chronic um uh, um colon issues and stuff. So camera freaking down my throat, camera up my ass, and it's just like it's like this this constant thing that's journeying with me and um apart from that in south africa our family was hit hard by crime like my mom was on rob my sister was on like like bad stuff like her dog was shot and they tore her clothes off her and she had to lie down in the blood and i had a knife against my head and and gun uh well after we arrested the guy that mugged me we realized he just folded up his hat and had it under his shirt but at that stage i didn't question him and i got to this place where i said like never again and i always had a pistol from the age of 21 i always had a pistol on my hip not a cool thing if you're a journalist to always have a pistol <laughs> but um uh and the stuff just like like stuck you know and i was very lucky that when i was about 25 i met a um a psychologist uh, I don't know if I should mention her name, but she had a lot of traumatic experiences in her life and especially with like sickness. And for four years I saw her and she did it all pro bono. Um, she would just say, Saturday, you're coming to my house at 5 p.m. We're going to buy Nando's. For those that don't know Nando's, it's a, 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 a fast food joint in South Africa. And then we would sit for four or five hours and just talk. And wow. that really changed my life. Like that changed my life. And I know, I, especially, you know, you're going to talk about other things beyond therapy that that's really effective. But sure. someone took the time to recognize that these things stuck around in my life and they'll they'll help me. And talking, just talking about all these emotions, like I can feel like, whoa, man, it's, it's intense. Um, yeah. But I, I also believe I'm at the stage where when I do go downhill a bit, I can start talking about it and realize what's going on and i'm fine again and and i was also at a stage where i didn't go out of the house man when i was a freelance photographer um for press um and and just as a a studio photographer traveling around shooting like before every job i had to hit the urban all i don't know if you know what urban all is but the (laughs) sedatives 
and really psych myself up. And then when I'm at the shoot, I'm like really digging it. Or sometimes I've got such panic attacks, I can't even hear what people are saying to me. And, and, but now my life's completely changed. And it was basically, I, I still feel I've got like remnants of this stuff left, you know, but um, coming to New Zealand and not having the threat of crime and, and realizing that you build things up in your mind was a big thing for me. And um, talking to a lot of South Africans here and talking to you before and realizing that South Africans uh, and a lot of people in a lot of countries where there's crime have PTSD and they just live with it, man. I saw a psychologist here in New Zealand and he's like, every South African he sees has PTSD. Like what we go through and not even your job, like just normal life, worrying that you're going to get shot or whatever is very traumatic. And um, I often wonder what's going to happen to New Zealand that's getting all these immigrants in from South Africa, from India, from Pakistan, from China and all these places where there's often poverty, high crime rates. What's, what's it going to look like in 10 years if people don't get help? Uh, if you're bringing in thousands of traumatized people and they're not getting help. But anyways, that's just the, a, a thought that I have. So yeah, I just thought I, I should share some of that. Um, and and uh, get, yeah. It takes bravery to, to share such personal <laughs> intimate stuff of yourself. Like, like you said, I'll just delete it afterwards and no one will ever hear it. I'm getting, I think guys crazy. Um, so, so you're a photojournalist. You were a photojournalist. Correct. I'm and, not um, anymore. You're not anymore. Um, I just want to, want to, um, like, how did you get into the photojournalism thing? Because being a photographer is, is exciting. It's just like, how did your journey start into, to photojournalism and was it just photography or was it writing? What, how did you start? Yeah. Um, well, I'll try and keep it short, but when I was a kid at high school, there was a TV show uh, called Frankie's Place, which was based on the life of Tim Page. The, uh, he was a famous Vietnam War photographer. Yeah. And I was looking at this and I just knew that's what I want to do with my life. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, I don't want to give my age away, but when I was 21, uh, it was still a big deal when you turn 21. So my parents asked me, you know, what do you want for your 21st birthday? And I said, I want a camera. Yeah. So they bought this uh, secondhand little steel body Canon. Uh, and I just started shooting pictures of everything and everybody. Uh, I did study law at university, but I failed basically everything except uh, the languages. <laughs> Uh, I studied communication, I studied art, a whole bunch of stuff, I never finished uh, my, my degrees or degree. Uh, and then it was just purely by, by chance that uh, I heard that there was a job going at one of the Caxton little community newspapers in the south of Joburg. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I went, I organized the interview, I showed them some of my portfolio of pictures, and they gave me a job. And it was just there that my life took this complete, you know, new route. I just went off on a tangent. Uh, also, in those days, you wrote the stories, you took the pictures. We did the physical layout of the newspaper with like rulers on paper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we developed our own pictures in the darkroom. So it was a fantastic uh, educational experience for me as a stepping stone, obviously, into, uh, you know, if I can call it that, more serious daily newspapers, that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. So, yeah, that was my, that was my start in the industry. And then, then um, in, in the community newspapers, you usually don't shoot a lot of crime in the way that you later did. Did you kind of then move on to other newspapers where that became a daily thing? Like, how did that progress into shooting uh, like, like that kind of like hardcore news? Yeah. 
Well, I, I have to be honest, we did shoot crime at the community newspapers. Uh, I think in those days, to be honest, I had better contacts with the police than I did when I worked at the dailies. So yeah, we did. Uh, you you are completely correct in saying that the extent of it is not as much because you you know you're covering like school news and you know one yeah, yeah, yeah. is growing a two meter sunflower in his back garden you know that sort of stuff. It's very community based. But but the bottom line is there is still crime that, ha that happens in the community. So we did cover a lot of crime. Uh, just for instance, uh, in the two years that I was at the Southern Korea, uh, it was also the years that the Wemapan serial killer was very active in that area. Yeah, so yeah. I, was, I was on quite a few of those scenes. Uh, so we did cover some crime, but uh, yes, not to the extent that I did at the dailies. And then when, what was the, what, what was your first daily that you worked for? Was it built? Um, uh, yeah, built. But uh, so after the uh, uh, stint at the community newspaper, I started freelancing for a couple of travel magazines, okay. uh, which was fantastic because I traveled all over the world on somebody else's dime. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but what happened then is uh, my freelancing, uh, I sort of put all my eggs in one basket. I was freelancing for one company which owned a whole bunch of uh, magazines. And when that job went south, obviously I lost like, I don't know, 80% of my uh, income overnight. I've been there, man. I've been there. <laughs> 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 and boom, goodbye. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, you know, financially, I was starting to get a bit, you know, pressure from all sides. I sold my flat that I had. I, well, I didn't sell my car, but uh, I sold basically everything that I owned. And I took the money and I went traveling around Ethiopia for a bit. And I came back and I sort of sold the story. And on the basis of the pictures that I took in Ethiopia, I got an interview at Built and then eventually a job at Built. So, yeah, I would say probably, what was it? I left the community newspaper in 98. And I started at Built in 2004. So there was a good sort of stretch between where I, where I was freelancing. So for those who don't know, Built is a Afrikaans daily newspaper. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, I don't know if it was in Long Walk to Freedom or in an interview, Mandela said a couple of years ago, I mean, I'm talking 30 years ago now, if you want to know what's going on in politics or in anything in South Africa, you read the Afrikaans newspapers. Um, because I, I don't know why there was a certain ethics. I'm not saying the other ones don't have it, but the, um, maybe it's because we all grew up so staunchly uh, Calvinistic <laughs> that we we were feared feared telling a lie, which has all changed. We'll talk about that later. Um, sure. But keep in mind, sorry to interrupt, but keep in mind that there was also the information scandal where uh, it turned out that uh, the Citizen newspaper was sort of clandestinely run and you know sort of was a mouthpiece of the apartheid government okay so let's like, oh, say post-apartheid <laughs> yeah cool um, but so yeah um and then then i mean when you're at a daily and you're not shooting just like the community sections of the daily you immediately fall into to having to go to crime scenes right is that how it evolves or how does how does how does that work no very much so um I mean, we have we have spoken in the past about this before, Gerard, that uh, large media companies do not have any sort of program in place to, you know, prepare you for what you're going to see. And there's also zero debriefing after stories like that. So it's very much, you know, you get thrown in the deep end. You just jump in the car with the reporter, you know, let's say a crime reporter, you go to a scene, you witness something 
completely horrible, something you've never seen before. Yeah. And, you know, you go back to the office, you edit your pictures, you file your pictures, and then you're off on the next story. So there's uh, virtually no, you know, way to prepare yourself for this. And there's also zero debriefing after, you know, I, I would say the debriefing in my experience, you know, 17 years of journalism was always to just go to a bar after, after work and sit around with some colleagues and talk shit and drink a couple of beers, you know, and tomorrow yeah. you, you just start all over again. Yeah, I remember when um, you obviously know um, Alette Pretorius. Yes. Um, when she used to tell me that she always had cigarettes with her because when she's on the crime scene and there's a body that's been there for a couple of hours, um, you you smoke because to you know and you dare not like vomit because the police will remember you did it and kind of take the Mickey take the shit out of you on the next sure. scene. Sure. Because everybody's trying to put up a brave face. I'm sure that policeman is going through the same shit that you're going through. 100%. Uh, and also the, the smell of a dead body permeates. It feels like it permeates your skin. You know, it's like when you get home, you actually don't even want to wash that clothes. You just want to throw it away, you know. So I get I get uh, the smoking on the scene 100%. Yeah. So so what, what is the staple stuff? It sounds so bad to say staple, but what is the staple stuff that that one shoots because South Africa has a lot of uh, service delivery protests for someone who doesn't know service delivery protests is usually um, lower income communities that don't get helped by politicians and at a stage when they haven't had electricity or haven't had running water for weeks or months they just basically lose it and start burning stuff or maybe get angry and people get hurt or like is that a good summary how would you put a service delivery protest yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's uh, it's when governments uh, fail to provide basic human rights to the people, you know, if, as you said, if they don't have uh, housing, they don't have running water, there's no flush toilets in the house, no electricity. So imagine if you have to live like that for, I don't know, let's say 20 years, and especially after, you know, a democratic election, and, you know, you feel that your voice will now be heard finally after all these years of apartheid, and you still live in a shack with, you know, zero you know, basic human rights. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it makes sense that a community will will get angry and start burning down, you know, government uh, office blocks or when the police come in to try and rein them in, they're going to throw stones and that sort of thing. So was so, that yeah, the table that you were shooting or was it crime scenes, like in terms of like, crime or or that hardcore news photography is that the staple what are you shooting well, about? i think I, I think it's difficult to to say staple because that's one of the things that appealed to me as a photojournalist is you never knew what would happen on a daily basis so yeah. uh, uh, in the in the days that i worked at blp we would average about three stories a day i'm talking specifically about the photographers so you would go out on you know let's say a, a interview with uh, some big corporate CEO for business for the business section of the newspaper go back to the office as you're still editing those pictures the crime reporter runs in and says okay well something's happening then you jump in a car go to a crime scene come back you're editing those pictures now you're all already late for you know uh, miss south africa press junket at the zoo you know like a little pr thing so yeah. if from, from day to day it was so different so varied uh, but we did i would say definitely uh, on average geez like probably three to four, maybe even five uh, uh, hard news uh, stories per week. So that would include uh, service delivery protests, yeah. crime scenes, uh, you know, car accidents, all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, it's easy to just 
talk about it now, but again, as we said, if you'd like some snot-nosed little okey pitching up at the newspaper, now you start working and all of a sudden, you know, you get thrown into these situations that you, you never experienced before and you witness things that are, you know, gruesome or, or violent or whatever, uh, it does throw you in a big way. And I think uh, the big thing for me, I, obviously I can't speak for other people, but for myself, what I found so difficult is that the news cycle is so fast, you never really get time to process any of it. Uh, you know, as I said, the, you go to the office, uh, you witness things during the day, you go to a bar afterwards, have a couple of drinks, then you go to sleep. The next day, it's new stories, it's different stories. So you, you know, you leave the stuff that you saw yesterday in yesterday, and those yesterdays, if you sort of wake up, it's 17 years that's gone by, and it's 17 years worth of yesterdays that you never really processed. Oh man, that's intense. How, how do you learn to negotiate? Um, like you said um, to me before, before we started recording that, that, you know, photography is 30% of it and, and kind of negotiating access to stuff. Like, how do you learn to negotiate? Like, do you, do you pitch up at a, at a crime scene and you're standing outside, but you know, you want to come in because your editor expects you to get that photo. Like, how do you start negotiating access to places? How does that work? Especially if you're a young guy with, you know, not as much, you, when you're 40, it's easy to read people, but when you're sure. 20, 21, it's, it's not there. Like, how do you start negotiating access? Do you just learn it? Uh, I very much so. I think it's something that you just learn on the job as you go, you know, uh, I think maybe one of the things that helped me is as a kid, uh, you know, when I was telling you earlier, I was at university trying to <laughs> earn all these various degrees. Every every uh, school holiday or university holiday, I worked underground in a gold mine to earn money to go to university. So oh, wow. I think there I got a lot of people skills as a, as a young man. Uh, and that definitely assisted me, you know, in the career as a, as a photojournalist. Culture. But yeah. Say again. Across cultures, it wasn't just like you. Yes, you know, yes, so yes. cultures and working in a mine, you're meeting everybody, sure. and you're yeah. A lot of migratory uh, uh, laborers from Zimbabwe, Mozambique, all over, uh, working together with like the true Afrikaans miner, you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah absolutely. That's uh, that really gave me a lot of people skills, I, I believe. Uh, but it is something that you do sort of cultivate over years and years. Um, uh, that, as you said, reading people, uh, sort of assessing a scene, uh, because it is difficult. I think, you know, as we said earlier, I believe that it's 70% trying to gain access to a scene and 30% is photography. But even that 30% of photography, I think that's also the one thing that I really loved about photojournalism is, you know, in most other genres of photography, you have control about everything, the lighting, the subjects, uh, you know, time of day that you shoot, uh, you know, where in photojournalism, you have zero control over any of the elements. You have to physically move around in your environment to line up all the elements and shoot one picture because the newspaper's not going to print five. They're just going to print one picture. So you have to shoot one picture that tells a complete story uh, while at the same time keeping in mind, you know, shutter speed, f-stop, uh, you know, continuously negotiating as we are discussing, you know, you know, moving around the scene. Can I, will you allow me to go into your house? That sort of thing. And you can never go to a guy, you know, say, excuse me, sir, you know, I missed the shot. Can you please just shoot your gun again? Or, you know, you were standing in the shade when you shot that other guy. Can you please just move into the sun so I get a better shot? So you only have one chance to do all of this. And I think that was very much part of what excited me so much about the job, you know? 
I'm gonna, uh, we'll talk about contact details for PT SDSA later, but I think now is just a good time to mention on Instagram, uh, Johan's Instagram account is journoj. So it's J-O-U-R-N-O-J-A-Y. And have a look at his photos there. There's some insane stuff. I'm gonna ask a couple of questions about it now. Um, so yeah, re really good stuff. Are you, with Ben, were you a fan? Like, were you looking up to certain photographers? Oh, absolutely, very much so. And Jao Silva, in my opinion, still one of the greatest photojournalists uh, that are that's still working today. He started at the Alberton Record, which is the same community newspaper. Yes, I was a I was a massive fan of the Bang Bang Club. As I said earlier, you know, sort of as a kid, I wanted to go into war photography. That was exactly what I wanted to do with my life. So yes, I was a major fan of uh, of these guys. Um, I mean, we'll obviously speak about it a little bit later. You know, it took a, a lot of therapy for me to figure out that photojournalism was never the right job for me, but there was very specific reasons why I went into it. Yeah. And also when you were chatting about your, your yeah. personal stuff earlier, I mean, obviously I didn't want to interrupt, but there was so much overlap from what you were saying and, you know, my stuff. Uh, for instance, you know, as a, as a young man, or young man, as a kid, we moved around so much that uh, I was always the new, new kid in school. So they, I, I always worked from a place where I felt very insecure and never good enough because I always had to be something special. So the new kid, you know, gets accepted. Yeah. So going into photojournalism, yeah. you know, looking back on my life now, it makes so much sense uh, after therapy that I chose that job because it made me feel special. Yeah. You know, I thought, you know, yeah. let's, let's, let's be real. You know, there was like, I don't know, less than 200 people in the country doing that job when I was doing it. So standing around a braai or a barbecue, whoever is listening, you know, one oak will say, so what do you do? Oh, I'm a doctor. What do you do? I'm a dentist. What do you do? I'm a photojournalist. Oh, shit, you must have seen so many things. And, you know, it's like people make you so also almost validate you, you know. And looking back, obviously, that was completely the wrong reasons for going into this job. For sure. For sure. Yeah, for sure. that's intense, man. I know just um, it, it's interesting because one does get a kick uh, when something is in print and your name is with it. Uh, it's immediate gratification, yeah. right? Well, it's slightly delayed, but you get what sure. I'm saying. Even now, when I see my name in print, yeah, yeah, you like uh, like someone's patting you on the shoulder, and it is it is a yeah. big, and but it is a personality. Like I, I fucking know I need that validation. So you yeah. know, um, and maybe that's not necessarily that bad. But now you start throwing all these external stuff in with it, and it and it really becomes bad. Do do you feel? Yeah you can look back and go like, oh, there was this one story. And when I did that one story, I was just like, fuck, that, that one hit me. And then it like, I don't know, and messed me up or, or, or did you look back after a bunch of stuff happened and then it just came down on you like a, like a ocean. Like how, how did you, did you yeah. immediately realize that, that you're seeing really tough stuff or was it just so go, go, go that you didn't realize it? It's, it's an interesting question, uh, and I do get asked that a lot. Um, what happened to me is that in 2007, I, I started at the Daily in 2004. Uh, so 2007, the pictures editor called me in, and he said that some of my colleagues were starting to complain about me being way too aggressive. And I was being aggressive with them, but as well as with the public when we're out on a scene or whatever. Oh, man. So... I decided to go do uh, go see somebody. Uh, I had a couple of sessions with a clinical psychologist who then d diagnosed me with PTSD. 
but what I, of course, did is I never told anybody. I didn't tell my boss. I didn't tell my friends, my family, nobody. I just kept it to myself. Uh, and the reason why I did that was uh, it's a classic uh, symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder is that you compare your trauma. So what I was comparing my trauma to is other, you know, we were talking about the Bang Bang Club, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would say to myself, you know what, somebody like Jao Silva, you know, has seen so many more, or so, you know, so much worse than me. So who am I to feel affected? Yeah. So keep quiet, don't tell anybody. That was the one thing. The other thing is that it was also a way of trying to uh, be respectful of the people that you photograph. Uh, and I'm, please don't misunderstand. I'm, I'm not saying that from a place of ego. Yeah. Uh, I was, as an example, you would go to a scene and there would be like, you know, a mother who had just lost her kid. You know, the kid was just shot and killed. So, you know, I take pictures and then I leave. I go into the office and I edit and file the images, but I leave that woman there in that, you know, very traumatic setting. So yeah. I would also say to myself, you know, that woman is living that trauma. I just witnessed it. She's living it. So who am I to feel affected? Don't tell anybody. Keep quiet. And that was 2007. And then it was, you know, what? I don't know how many years later. My maths is terrible. But 2019, I only finally received the therapy and the treatment that saved my life, literally. Yeah. So all of those years, you know, you just keep quiet and you just keep getting sicker and sicker and sicker. I mean, I continued working from 2007 till 2012. In, in the same job that makes me sick. So that is that is a classic uh, example of uh, one of the things that people with PTSD do, you know? Um, I think I'm gonna get to the specific, um, uh, like, I don't know if symptoms is the right word, but the specifics of PTSD a bit later, because I wanna, I wanna uh, touch on a couple of photos. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I just I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, Gerard. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just realized that I didn't. I didn't actually answer your question. <laughs> there, there is, <laughs> there is a couple of stories, uh, or there are a couple of stories. <laughs> now there are there are a couple of stories definitely that uh, that stand out in my mind that was uh, more traumatic than others, but uh, it is uh, for me it was a, a case of repeated trauma over a prolonged period of time. As I said, you know, in those days you would at least uh, two to three, maybe four or five stories, uh, hard news stories per week, you know. So, you know, during the course of one week, you would get traumatized, if I can say it like that, a couple of times, but you never do anything about it. You never process that trauma or get debriefed or anything. And that over a period of 17 years accumulates to a shitload of trauma, you know. Yeah. Do you, um, how did you deal with fear? Um, because I've, I, I've shot three, four service delivery protests for South African Press Association, and all of them went pretty smoothly. And okay. you know, I'm happy to admit I was shitting myself in half of them. I was out with uh, uh, obviously one of your ex colleagues, also Felix Langamandla. Uh, yeah. Awesome dude. Fantastic shooter. And I remember <laughs> um, uh, him looking at, at a protest in front of a court one day. I can't remember what it was about. And he just looked at me and he said, yeah shit's gonna hit the fan today because it was students and it was hot and no one had bought food or water and you could just feel there was a buzz like how do you deal okay. with that that fear um did you just suck it up because sometimes you're standing there and you're basically freaking out but you've got a job to do man someone expects a photo was was that it or were you do you feel you can handle stressful situations better on the spot um well, again, you know, I, I can only speak for myself, but uh, we all have that uh, fight, flight, freeze or fawn mode that you go into, yeah. which is basically adrenaline and cortisol that gets secreted into your system. 
uh, I think that uh, I work pretty well under stressful conditions. Um, I mean, fear is obviously part of it, but fear can also, you know, be very useful. So again, I think if you, if you are afraid that is adrenaline being secreted into your body and adrenaline can be, you know, exactly what you need in that specific situation. So, yeah, I think, I think overall I, I work pretty well in stressful, well, I used to <laughs> work pretty well in stressful situations. Um, yeah. Um, how do you, how do you negotiate like a scene where there's police shooting rubber bullets at protesters who are setting stuff alight and um, throwing rocks at the police or even shooting at the police and yeah. you have to keep yourself safe, but you want to get the photo um yeah. like how do you negotiate negotiate that are you keeping your trying to keep yourself safe first or you choose a side I think today sticking on the police side and next time you're on the protesters standing on their side shooting you know how do how do you approach that well i think it's it's a very difficult thing to do uh, personally i would not choose a side because then in my opinion you lose the objectivity of it um, but it is very difficult because if you seem to align too much to the cops, then you become a target as well. And if you align yourself too much with the protesters, I mean, we're just using that example, right? Yeah, yeah, then yeah. you get shot with rubber bullets. So it is a very fine line to, to sort of work. Uh, I remember the one time I was in Proteo South in Soweto for a, for a, for a protest. And uh, at one stage, I mean, we were there for most of the day, but at one stage, uh, the cops started pushing into the township, like really pushing the protesters back, you know, sort of between the shacks. And I was following these two policemen. And at one stage, we all of a sudden found ourselves isolated, like all the other cops had pulled back and these two didn't realize. And obviously I didn't because I think that's one of the other things is a photographer, you sort of have that barrier, you constantly have the camera in front of your face and it, it can, you know, in your mind psychologically almost make you feel secure, like you in a different world, you witnessing everything from the outside, you know. Um, so anyway, what happened is uh, these two cops got charged, uh, they started running away, so obviously I thought, shit, I also need to get the hell out of here, and as I turned around, I got a brick to the back of the head, and you were talking about my Instagram account, there is a picture of me with blood running down my face. That's why uh, I think it was. Uh, it's got blood down <laughs> face. So, yeah. so the photo, I'm just going to describe it before you go talk about it, uh, the photo is, okay. who took that photo of you? It, I, it was Jennifer Bruce of the star took the picture. Okay. Uh, you've got your bandaged up at that stage, yeah. but the blood is yeah. streaming down your yeah. down the back of your head, which is not a good place Correct. to be thrown with a rock. If you want to be thrown yeah. with a rock, the front of the head is much better. Yeah. And and okay, sorry. And then then you got you got thrown with a brick, I presume. Yeah, it was a brick to the back of the head. But I also want to want to just carry on with the story because what happened is as I got hit in the head, obviously I fell down and I was like you know out of it for a, for a couple of seconds. And as I came to, all these protesters with bricks in their hands started advancing on me. But the guy right in front sort of, you know, I, I just put up my hands, but he came up to me, he took me by the hand and he told all the other guys, leave him alone. And he literally walked with me all the way through the shacks until we got to a specific place where he said to me, okay, listen, from here, you're going to have to be on your own because otherwise they're going to shoot me. And he disappeared. I came stumbling, <laughs> stumbling out between the shacks. And then fortunately there was an ambulance on scene because earlier in the day, a little kid got knocked down by a car. So I was in the, that picture was taken of me in the back of the ambulance. And then I, you know, the reporter took me to hospital. 
um how bad was that did you have concussion or was it just like a oh no i you know slight concussion with just a couple of stitches and i got i think i got two days off work and i got this beautiful fruit basket uh, from news 24 which was fantastic yeah i ate out of that for like three four days that should, that should um sort out the psychological issues also that fruit yeah. basket, right that's, that's my absolutely and tomorrow you have to shoot that shit again so yeah, yeah. that's like now you've been hit in the head a week later you have to go to a service delivery protest again did that did you feel that affected you a lot that specific incident because you were harmed or was there was it not that uh to be honest no if i i mean to be honest i also can't remember how soon after that i had to to you know cover another service delivery protest yeah. uh so no to be honest i cannot remember i can't even remember what year that was i do remember it was two days before my birthday so i pitched up at my birthday with a hard hat a mining hard hat <laughs> <laughs> yeah well but, uh, i i i think it might have been shortly after that that i left uh, the country so i think uh, i don't think that's really affected me very much Fortunately, um, there's a lot of uh, photos of, of xenophobic attacks um, on your account. Obviously, the account is just a real snapshot of all the work you've done. Um, sure. Uh, I, I think maybe uh, first, what, what is a xenophobic attack? How would you describe it to someone who's never heard of, of it? Uh, the well, South African if we can make it, Yeah, I was just going to say, if we can focus on South Africa, uh, we do have a, a large community of uh, legal and illegal uh, uh, immigrants coming across the border from Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Congo, Somalia, Ethiopia, all over. People come to South Africa in search of a better life, you know. Uh, and there are these, uh, once in a while, there are these sort of flare-ups of xenophobic violence where the, the local people in a specific sort of area would accuse these people of taking their jobs, of, you know, taking their money, taking their women, all sorts of stuff like that. And then violence erupts. These people have their shops burned down, they get killed, they get, you know, sort of pushed out of the communities. Um, so, yeah, that is what xenophobic violence looks like in South Africa. Yeah. And then, then you obviously, I, I mean, there's stuff post-violence, there's a lot of photos where there's police shooting and stuff. Do you feel the, the xenophobic attacks was especially... Uh, uh, different than other crimes or do you, do you think it, 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 it fit into the same category? I know that's such a random question to ask, but because um, there was a lot of bad things happening there and a lot of emotions, um, was it hard to shoot that or, or was it the same as any, any other job? Uh, no, I think uh, every, every story has got its sort of individual, you know, angles and, you know, nuances, if I can call it that. Uh, I think the one thing with the xenophobic violence is that just when you covered it, well, when I covered it, you, you got a very holistic sort of view of all of it. In other words, you would, you would see the violence, you would photograph the violence, but then at the same time, you would go to some of the sort of uh, uh, refugee centers that uh, popped up uh, where you would also see the children sleeping under the stars, you know, with no shelter. So, so you would get a very broad overview of the whole story. Uh, you know, you would shoot pictures of uh, some guy walking through the burnt rubble of his shop, you know, that was his, the way that he made a living. And then you would later photograph the same guy getting on a bus, getting, you know, expatriated back to Mozambique or wherever because he's in fear of his life. So you get a very broad overview of this the whole spectrum of the story, if that makes sense. It's a true um, story. I think it's not just a snapshot of an event. 
it's something Correct. that it's almost like there's a narrative to it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's very much more like a picture story than a news story in the newspaper with, uh, you know, just one picture accompanying it. Okay. Um, uh, so now your editor told you, listen, you're becoming quite aggressive. Like, what do you change after that? Or do you tell yourself to suck it up and kind of be nicer to everybody? Like, what's, what's happening at this stage? So uh, in that stage, uh, to be honest, I didn't do anything. As I said, I didn't tell anybody, but I also didn't do any counseling. After I got diagnosed, I didn't go back for any more counseling. Uh, so what happened is, uh, I would say slowly but surely, I started spiraling down. Uh, I was very negative, very, very negative about where I found myself at the newspaper and I wanted to progress or just, you know, looking back at it, obviously I just actually wanted to get away. Yeah. So what I did is I started working on a picture story uh, that would take me to Iraq eventually. Yeah. And shortly after that story, I also started sending out, C I mean, I was sending out CVs everywhere, but shortly after I came back from Iraq, I got a job at the UN in the Sudan. So yeah. then I left the newspaper. So if, if to answer your question, I didn't do anything uh, positive. I think I did a whole bunch of things negative, uh, you know, in order just to avoid and get away from this place where I was being accused, if, you, if I can say that much of being so aggressive, but in, in my mind, I wasn't being aggressive. I, I was just so negative and, you know, I couldn't stand this newspaper anymore. So what I did is I actively avoided, you know, avoidance is the, is the word I would use. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, um, people often think like if they change job, then they'll become better uh, emotionally. Right. Even just the yeah. normal job, no, no crime scenes attached to it. Yeah, yeah. but that's not the core of it the core isn't your colleagues that you're going to find the same colleagues at the, at the at the next job the core is the the issues was there any support from newspaper staff is there any like uh, uh like in new zealand here you have eap services i don't know what, what it stands for I'll, I'll, i can anyone can google it but basically if i feel okay. like uh, uh, things that i want to deal with uh, most companies will sponsor three sessions with the psychologist and then you have the option of extending that. Um, and it's a national okay. service that's, that's there and they're quite effective. I've actually been to see EAP services in some year. Thank you company for paying for that. Um, and and the, the, the guy I saw was really, really good. But um, uh, was there any like that type of thing that you could fall, fall back on or was it just, sorry, I've got PTSD. Let's keep quiet about it. Yeah, look, again, as I said, from my side, I never reached out to anybody. I didn't tell a living soul uh, about the diagnosis. Um, I do know that uh, all the years that I worked as a journalist, there was never, ever any debriefing after any traumatic uh, story that I covered. Uh, but at the same time, I also have to admit that I never went to HR, let's say, and, and asked them, you know what, guys, I'm really struggling. I need help. Yeah. So if there is a program in place, I wouldn't know about it. So, <laughs> Because you were just hard-headed or yeah, yeah. something like that. Um, yeah. Um, are, are, you, are, you, are you depressed or struggling with depression? Is anxiety a, a big thing in your life already? Or did it really come at the end of, of everything? Uh, are you asking me how I feel right now as we're speaking? No, no, no. The, back then, I mean, you, you were aggressive. Oh. Stuff, but did you yeah. realize that? It's not just anger. Was it was it manifesting in depression and anxiety at that stage already? 
Uh, I don't think it was uh, anxiety. It, I, obviously, looking back, it was definitely depression. Uh, but it, it, the way it manifested was in the aggression, but as well as extreme negative thoughts, negative thoughts about myself, about the world. I fucking hated, hated this world. Every single person on this planet, including myself, I just hated this place. So, I mean, and if you think about working as a journalist, obviously there has to be a large amount of compassion and empathy if you want to do this job properly. And that started going out the window. So, you know, I think I was still functioning, but it definitely detracted from the quality of my work, I would imagine. Hmm. Um, uh, another, another part on your Instagram that's, uh, that I think is pretty awesome is the work you did uh, with dogs. And that actually leads to another question about Kodak, your dog. But uh, <laughs> before we get to dogs, um, how do you end up shooting for the UN? Is that just a job application or did someone notice your work? Um, and and where, where did you travel to? Uh, no, no, that was definitely you apply for, for a job at the UN. Uh, they have a, a jobs portal. I mean, obviously, I haven't been on that uh, thing in years. But in those days, there was a jobs portal that advertised all the uh, UN jobs going in the various missions or agencies. Uh, there were a couple of photography positions that opened up, uh, I think it was about 2007 thereabouts uh, that I applied for and I just, I, I applied and I left it. I never, you know, sort of thought about it again. And it was literally, I mean, I don't want to lie to you, weeks, two, three weeks after I came back from Iraq, uh, early 2008, that I got a call from uh, the mission in Sudan who wanted to interview me. We did the interview, got the job. And uh, to be honest, uh, they told me afterwards, the only reason why I got the job was my availability because uh, the other person that was in the running for the job had to, I think, give like two months notice or whatever, and they needed somebody soon. So I got the job. <laughs> wow, man. That's and sorry, just to also answer your other question. So the job was in the uh, in UNMIS, United Nations mission in Sudan. Uh, in those days, Sudan was still one country, the largest country in Africa. And uh, the mission was in North and South Sudan to keep the peace between the, the two uh, sort of armies of the North and the South. Uh, and the other thing that was cool about it in those days, it was unique that there would be two UN missions in one country. So there was UNMIS and the other one, one was UNAMIT, which was in Darfur. And that was also a unique mission because it was a hybrid between UN and African Union. So many mornings, I was based in Khartoum, but many mornings when I would get to my office, the whole canteen would be sitting full of uh, South African soldiers and police, because uh, obviously with the African Union, there was a very large South African contingent there. So it was great for me to sort of hook up with, you know, cops and soldiers from my home country every day. I can imagine. Were you, were you shooting physical conflict in the sense that gunfights, or were you there to cover the the like what what was that were you there to cover like human humanitarian aid or did it was it everything uh it was sort of everything uh to be honest in the time that i was there i was only sort of once in a in a you know a, how can i say this you know a gunfight if you will between the warring part between north and south a firefight yeah in a place called malakal uh but generally it was more sort of uh, very I would almost say PR type stuff because I was working for the public information office of the mission. So the job was to, to promote the, the work that the mission is doing in this in the country. Uh, but at the same time, there was also obviously a lot of overlap with uh, the mandate of the mission and the mandate of the various agencies like World Food Program, World Health Organization, UNHCR, uh, whoever, you know, UNICEF. So whenever they, these agencies were doing something that would uh, promote the work of the mission as well, then 
I would just tag along on the, you know, sort of exploits and shoot that as well. But uh, most of it would be more humanitarian sort of stuff, absolutely. And then, man, a lot of a lot of press briefings and a lot of press conferences and that sort of stuff. So, the, the, you know, if you if if you are talking specifically more about the sort of uh, for lack of a better word, hardcore news sort of stuff. It was there, but not to, to that big an extent as what you may think. Do you, do you feel that you got some respite from the hardcore stuff in South Africa in terms of like not having to face that type of death or was the poverty so extreme there that you were seeing real bad stuff every day? Uh, yeah, no, I, I exactly what you're saying. Uh, I would have thought that the work that I felt I was doing would be helping so many people, but I got the opposite uh, feeling because uh, as a civilian working in a UN mission, you were earning an exorbitant amount of money. And at the same time, you would be dealing daily with like the poorest of the poor people. Yeah. And that, that really sort of eats away at your conscience, you know? So uh, it, I, I found it very extremely tough to operate in that, uh, in that place. Uh, just an, as, as an example, a story that I can quickly tell you, uh it was just before christmas in 2008 uh the lord's resistance army was sort of killing and plundering uh, up in uganda somewhere and a whole bunch of people were... yeah you know <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> a lot of people were fleeing across the border into the jungles of south south sudan from the congo unhcr was tasked to uh, organize a little sort of refugee spot where these people can be moved to so that they don't live like you know in the jungle uh, the one morning we went very early with a whole bunch of trucks. These people came flocking out of the jungle. We put them in trucks and it took like the whole day of hard traveling on dirt roads. And eventually we got to this little, little, little town. I think it was called Makpandu, where a UNHCR was setting up this camp where these people can now, you know, have more security. Uh, and as they were getting out of the trucks, uh, I spotted across the road, there's a guy with a shop and I say shop, you know, in the very loose meaning of the word, because he literally just had a little bit of canvas on the, on the ground, a couple of apples, a couple of bananas, I think a couple of bottles of water. And then he had these little packets of biscuits. And I mean, the road that we took was a very quiet road, but it did lead up to obviously some of the larger towns. So once in a while, the truck would pass him by and maybe stop and buy water. So that, that was what he did for a living, right? So I'm watching this guy because, I mean, he must have thought, fuck, you know, it's two weeks before, before Christmas. And here's like a whole town full of people being dumped right in front of his shop. So, you know, happy days are here again, you know. Yeah, yeah. So as I'm watching him, he takes a little plastic bag and he starts putting the biscuits into the plastic bag. And I'm thinking, fuck, you know, I, I knew it. You know, he walks across the road and he's going to start selling the biscuits to these people who literally they don't have anything. Yeah. And uh, there was one truck where they put all the little kids in. So the kids were being taken out of the truck and they were sitting in this little huddled group. Uh, I mean, frightened out of their mind. You can only imagine what they must have been through just to get to that place right there. Right. So this guy walks up with his little packet of biscuits and he starts handing them out, literally saying, welcome. Yeah. Take welcome. Welcome. And I'm actually getting emotional now telling you this because that 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 image stays i mean it's burned into my retinas i will never forget what that man did but that broke me you would think it is such a positive you know and beautiful you know loving gesture but that story on that day fucking broke me yes i can uh, so i often i often tell this story to people because also you know 
guys go to clubs or whatever and they drink a whole bottle of brandy and then they like you know assault somebody or whatever and all his mates say oh you know that guy's hardcore you know what uh, in my humble opinion you don't know what the fuck you're talking about this yeah. guy handing out those little biscuits to those kids that is hardcore he's yeah. got nothing and what he has he gives away free to these people who has even less that that moment will stay with me for the rest of my life yeah, and I think if you're in a, in a place where, where you're struggling with so much uh, emotions and you see the, like acts of kindness, it's really, really, really tough because that's the thing that has the ability to, to um, break through all that barriers you set up. And if, if someone stood there with a UN truck handing out food, it wouldn't have affected you that much because what he did no, was, well, was true humanity. Yeah, like, there was, that was true, like, absolutely. like giving out of a place of little, giving to... Yeah, that's amazing, man. You, 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 you're absolutely 100% right. There was a WFP truck there giving the people, you know, like big bags of maize or whatever. And but what this man did was just, you know, there's no words for it. I, I cannot explain to you what that moment did to me as, as, yeah. as a person. And then you, you finished it down, but you went to Iraq. Was that also with the UN or is that something you, you organized by yourself? Because I know, like, I know Felix, I think Felix went to Libya and he paid like out of his own pocket you know people yeah. photojournalists do crazy freaking stuff like how did you end up in in because you were an embedded journalist as far as I understand that is correct yeah look the the Iraq story was before the UN okay. um, that story I worked uh, for two years on that story it was a, a personal project the way that came about is that uh, in Baghdad at the airport there was a South African company that trained uh, dogs to sniff out explosives with handlers and one of their dogs a little Jack Russell I think if I remember correctly uh, I remember the dog was named Buddy he broke his leg in a freak accident but instead of euthanizing him, the company said there's no way they, they're letting him go. They flew him back to South Africa at exorbitant amount of money and uh, rehabilitated him. And Buddy actually went back to Iraq and he finished his uh, tour there. Uh, so when this story broke in Build, I thought, man, this would be a fantastic picture story. So I contacted the company and I started going there uh, every, I think it was every second week on my day off. I would drive through to the facility and start shooting the story as the, as the dogs arrive as puppies. And then as they go through the whole training exercise right on until I think the last pictures I got was of some of their dogs in crates uh, being loaded onto aircraft to fly from Joburg to, to Baghdad. And the original idea was that I would accompany the, these guys to uh, Baghdad and to shoot, you know, to finish the story to see exactly the job that the dogs are doing. But then unfortunately, I think there was some big explosion in the green zone or something. And all the, the entry criteria into Baghdad completely changed. So I couldn't follow these guys anymore. So that, you know, that was already a year's worth of work that just disappeared in a puff of smoke. So I was very disappointed and depressed about it. Um, and also back in those days, Bilt had a, 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 in Afrikaans, they called it a beta contour. It was like a outside office. And we had a guy in uh, Washington. I contacted him, asked him if he had any contacts at the Pentagon. He sent me an email. I emailed the guy at the Pentagon. And, you know, just like through this little chain of emails, I eventually found an embed team in Iraq. I emailed them and said, well, you know what? I was busy with this story. It's not working out anymore, but I would still like to do a story on military working dogs. And I don't want to lie to you. I think it was three weeks later, I got the green light to say, yeah, cool, you can come. Uh, I had to jump through a bit of, you know, bureaucratic sort of hoops. 
But at the end of the day, I was going to go on my own dime, pay for my flight tickets. Uh, I had to buy my own bulletproof vests and, you know, stuff like that. But then we figured out that uh, if the company doesn't officially send me, first of all, I cannot take my, my camera gear out of the country. And second of all, if something happens to me, my life insurance won't pay out. So then I made this agreement with the company where they paid for half and we would also split the, you know, half own the copyrights of the images. Uh, and then, yeah, off I flew, <laughs> like this snot-nosed little, you know, greenie off to my first real war zone. And I stayed there for, I think it was just over a month. And I was embedded with various uh, canine units attached to like the 101st Airborne, uh, the 3320 Rucker Sons, all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, units and stuff. And it was, for, uh, to, to this day, I think that was the highlight of my career. It was the story that I most loved doing. And it was, uh, I really think that was, that was the pinnacle. I, if I should have, I should have actually left journalism after that story, I think. Yeah. I, I looked at some of those photos and I've seen other photos that aren't on Instagram. I can't remember if it was an exhibition a couple of years ago uh, in Pretoria, or I don't know if it was a picture story in Beeld. I can't remember what it was. But I remember specific photos that really, like, I just looked at it and thought, like, damn, shooting this must be amazing. Because I've always loved dogs. And, and, yeah. and you know, they get a rank, which is really cool. Um, and sorry to interrupt. The, the dog's rank is always one rank higher than the handler. So if the handler ever abuses the dog, it's an immediate court martial and he gets kicked out of the army. Oh, so let's yeah. say that the handler is a sergeant. The, the dog will be a sergeant first class, for instance. <laughs> So, of so how do you, what did, how do you, how are you embedded? You get up in the morning with these guys. They say we're going on a mission. You jump in the truck and boom, you just start shooting. Yeah, that's it. Basically, uh, the one thing that uh, really surprised me about uh, my time there is that they never once asked me to view any of my images. Uh, I basically shot whatever I wanted, uh, and I, yeah, they never ever, you know, there was no uh, sort of. Uh, censorship or anything like that which really surprised me yeah. uh, i think there was maybe once where they asked me not to attend a briefing where there was like sort of you know classified information or whatever but other than that i basically had autonomy i could move around and also because i i wasn't attached to a specific unit i was attached to a canine unit that meant that i could move between you know sort of the bigger units as well which was fantastic so i i was based mainly uh, just south of baghdad but I moved to quite a few, they call it forward operating bases. And then from there, you would move to the combat outposts. And from the combat outposts, you then go on patrols and missions and all sorts of stuff like that. It was and, very uh, interesting. And was, was there, sorry, sorry. Continue. No, no, please go ahead. So, so um, was, was it mostly dogs trying to sniff out um, IEDs or what, what was the, was it everything? What, what did those dogs cover? Because I saw, I mean, there's everything from French Malinois to either Labradors or Retrievers. There was all kinds of dogs. It wasn't like a specific, yeah. like... No, absolutely, yeah. Sorry, that was my alarm. <laughs> um, yeah, mostly they use uh, German Shepherds and Belgian Malinois, uh, but then there are Labradors and they do also use smaller, physically smaller dogs like Jack Russells and stuff. And the reason for that is that if they have to sniff out, uh, let's say for instance, in a warehouse, you can physically put the dog on a shelf and it runs on the shelf because you know the larger dogs obviously doesn't fit. Yeah, um, but yeah, the, you get uh, different types of dogs. So you would get attack dogs uh, and then explosive sniffer dogs. 
but then you also get a mix of the two where, you know, if you go out on patrols or whatever, the dog is trained to sniff out explosives. But if there is, uh, you know, I don't know, let's say an insurgent that jumps up and starts running away, the dog can actually attack him. The, debilitate him or disable him <laughs> i like those kind of dogs um i've got a oh yeah did you were you under contact like firefight there or was it patrols and just just kind of clearing zones yeah so i would say the the closest that i got to something like that is uh, just before we arrived we were out on a patrol and when we came back to one of the forward operating bases uh, probably about 10 minutes before we arrived, uh, a Humvee hit an IED just outside the gate of the uh, of the uh, base. Uh, the guys weren't killed, but they were like, you know, broken arms and legs and whatever. So when we arrived, obviously the tension in the whole base was, you know, way pushed way to the max. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think that during the course of my stay in Iraq, nothing really happened. You kept, you know, having sort of a, you know, that underlying sort of fear and your adrenaline is pumping. But then after a certain couple of days, you sort of start to relax. And when this happened, I think it just made it very real to me again that, you know what, you are in a theater of operations. These things, you know, it's very possible that something like this can happen. And then a couple of days after that, you would see one of the pictures on Instagram as well is, um, I think it's, uh, is it Corporal Tim Webb? I think it's Corporal. Uh, he's standing, there's sort of like a heap of rubble and he's standing with his hand against the wall uh, with uh, one of the dogs with him. And I took the picture because uh, the dogs indicated that there's something in, underneath the bricks in this little heap of rubble. And then they found the copper wire and detonators. And then, oh man, it must have been like 10 minutes later, they actually found a, a IED in the wall right where his hand was. And what they say to us is that normally, well, not normally, but sometimes the insurgents would uh, place things like this on purpose. So the dog indicates that there's explosives here and they then booby trap, you know, put a booby trap close to it in the hopes that while these guys are working on a specific area, somebody else in the vicinity then triggers the booby trap. So, you know, there was a, there was a couple of incidents like that. And then you asked me earlier if there are specific stories that stick out in my mind that, uh, you know, traumatized me more than others. Uh, the last day that I was in Iraq, uh, I was on my way back. Uh, there's a scheduled, uh, not a scheduled, uh, um, what do you call it? <laughs> That's a heavy Afrikaans thing to say, by the way, listeners. If you're speaking English, <laughs> this is your second language. And you can't remember the English word. You, people always say, what do you call it? Cool. Um, what is it? <laughs> uh, so it's not a scheduled flight. Uh, yeah, it's an unscheduled flight, uh, yeah, yeah. a chartered flight. There we go. There we go. Sorry, Karat, man. Yeah, so um, I was on this chartered flight uh, from Baghdad to uh, Kuwait. And the flight was supposed to arrive, let's say, I can't remember, but let's say eight o'clock at night. So just before we board, start boarding, I said, no, 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 we have to wait because the flight is now changed into a mercy flight. We're waiting for a patient. So we stood on the tarmac freezing our nuts off for, I don't know, another hour and a half. And then an ambulance arrives. And it's one of those planes where you sort of board from the back, you know, it yeah, opens yeah. the tailgate. So they, you can see that they're working on a patient and then they take the patient into the plane and then we can start boarding. But now as we are boarding, you know, this little rumor mill starts flow, flowing. So there's like all this little snippets of information that's coming down. And it turns out that the patient is a little girl that was, uh, uh, there was an artillery shelling of uh, some target, but the target was misdirected. So her little village got bombed and she got, you know, they burned in this explosion. 
So anyway, we boarding the flight. And as we sort of boarding, you know, you're going to walk past her little sort of, they put up like a little medical, you know, bed and drips and all sorts of stuff. And as I'm approaching, I realize that I am going to pass right by her and her eyes are open. She's checking out everybody that's walking past her, you know. And I mean, as you can imagine, uh, obviously frightened out of her mind. I can't imagine what pain she must have been in. Her face was burned completely. And, uh, you know, I start panicking because I think to myself, you know, as I'm approaching, when I walk past her, should I like look at her and smile, you know, like try and be, you know, calming presence or, you know, what, what should I do? Because then I think, no, fuck, maybe if I smile, she's going to think, you know, this oak is laughing at me. Something, you know, it's just, yeah, I my get mind that. just went in overdrive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I get as I get to her and she looks into my eyes, I turn my head away and I walk past. Sorry. No. So I walk past this little girl and um, I don't think I've ever forgiven myself for that moment, you know. Um, that was not my best moment as a human being. Um, at the same time, as I'm chatting to you now, I, I realized that I had to go through that experience to make me the person that I am today. So I am not, uh, um, I'm thankful for that experience because I, it taught me so much about myself years later, but uh, obviously I still wonder what happened to her, you know, did she make it? Did she survive? Where is she now? Does she have a happy life? You know, all those sort of things sometimes play in your mind, you know? But I can imagine sure, that sure. must be, be, be intense. Was that on leaving? Yeah. Was that on leaving Iraq, or were you still? You were that now was, another story. That was literally the last day. On on that flight, we flew back out of Baghdad to Kuwait, and then on back home to Joburg. Wow, man! That was my my last experience of Iraq was on my flight home, and it wasn't great. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah, man. I I don't know you. You don't think so, maybe, but I think it, the the things you guys do is is super brave. Like I've always looked up to all my colleagues because I don't have the balls to shoot these things, right? But then you speak to to you now afterwards, and you realize, you know, it it, it took its toll on people uh, because you always yeah. I'd always go out with them and shoot music, and everybody would get pissed out of their brains. And you realize, like, I was like, Fuck, everybody's got real problems here, drinking problems. It, that wasn't the issue. Everybody's dealing with, with, with all this stuff that they've seen millions of times, and there's no, no assistance to, yeah. to, to help them. And I don't know of the other guys, but I believe you're the only one that's talking about it. Um, I, I, you know what, there are quite a few uh, photojournalists recently that uh, have started opening up about their PTSD. Uh, I don't think this is my platform to, to name their names. I think, you know, each of them have to tell their own stories. But there are definitely some, uh, some photojournalists, uh, colleagues of ours, our, our, you know, group, our time, yeah. uh, that have started speaking out, which I think is fantastic. And also just to, to touch on something you mentioned earlier when you were talking about your own uh, struggles with anxiety. Um, you know what, uh, I think it's, it's essential to know that a lot of the stuff that we deal with at our later stage in our lives come from our childhoods. Yeah. Because, you know, as a kid, you don't, you know, you go through stuff as a kid, but you don't really 
know how to deal with it or even realize that it has such a big impact. But those things, uh, you know, manifest in every single decision that you make later in your life. So if you can get to a place where you can talk about your anxiety, for instance, you are taking away the power that this stuff has held over you for such a long time. Uh, And it's like, you know, that anxiety that you were talking about, it, it, it can get debilitating, but even if it's not debilitating, it is literally like an extra layer of life on top of you that you have to deal with apart from all of the other stuff. So if you can get to a space where you can let go of that layer or just erase it, I mean, geez, like what's a freedom on the other side of that, right? You're you're 100% right. And once you realize that, it's super empowering. Um, Sure. I want to get back to the dogs, but I want to ask something else first. When you started talking about PTSD, and we'll get to like PTSD and and like what it is exactly and what happens to your brain and things. But when you started down this road where you couldn't work anymore, we're not there yet, but you couldn't, you went to the stage where you literally didn't leave your, your house, right? What were other journalists or other photojournalists doing? Were they like, did you just cut yourself off from them or were they supportive or would they come to you and say, shit, I also have PTSD or like, were they just putting on a brave face? Like what, what happened with that? Uh, well, we are going ahead a bit in the story, but uh, so in September 2012, uh, this is after I came back from the Sudan, I was freelancing for a number of years and then I got a job at the Citizen, uh, I think, I don't know, maybe three months after I got the job at the Citizen, I was fired at, at the Citizen, uh, something that I'm not allowed to speak about. Uh, You're going to tell I me afterwards and I won't speak about it. <laughs> Um, but anyway, let's just say that the industry sort of spat me out. Uh, and uh, for the first time in my 17 year career, you know, we spoke about the news uh, cycle being so fast and you never have time to process anything or whatever. So all of a sudden, I had nothing but time. You know, I didn't have a job. Uh, I moved back in with my parents uh, on a plot uh, on a small rural sort of town outside of Joburg. And all of a sudden, it was just this quiet and all of these things, all of this accumulative trauma of 17 years just washed over me. And it just, I mean, it was it was so debilitating. Uh, so to answer your question, I, none of my ex-colleagues knew because I wasn't in Joburg, you know, I wasn't around them anymore. Uh, but to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure that even if they were around that they would know how to help me. Yeah. I think that is one of the, the big things people with, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, tend to self-isolate completely. Well, that's what I did. Definitely is I isolated myself from my friends and family. I mean, even my parents, we lived on the same property, but sometimes days would go by that they wouldn't even see me and I wouldn't come out of my my cottage. Um, I think a lot of people would like to help you, but they don't know how. And I think that just adds to that feeling of isolation because make no mistake, it is self-isolation. You you choose to isolate yourself from the world because it is such a negative place. So you feel very alone, but then when people do try to reach out, they, I would, you know, it, it maybe sounds harsh, but people who try to help you actually just irritate you uh, because they don't know, you know, how you feel or what's going on and they don't know how to help you. So this whole thing just, you know, it's like a festering thing and it just spirals down and down and down into this very, very dark place. I think that's where the institutions have some responsibility to force you to go and debrief. Um, yeah. And and not just one little session. Uh, yeah. But, but that, that that's not going to happen. I don't know if any institutions now have it. I, before I forget about the dogs, 
Um, yes. Uh, I want to talk about Kodak. Um, so yes. when you finish shooting the the the, the dog story, um, no. uh, you you earlier said that one of your friends I can't remember exactly, but someone said you like the dogs and they know dogs help people that 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 struggle with PTSD. Is that, is that more or less correct? Like, and then you got Kodak. I know this, I probably pushed everything into a weird timeline. <laughs> very, a very condensed version. <laughs> and now is a good time to, to what's Kodak's Instagram handle? Uh, what is it? Kodak's moments? No, it's at Slung Atom. There we go. At okay. Slung Atom. Slung is, is snake. It was uh, Johan's, uh, oh, what is a binom in English? His nickname. Nickname. Um, and, and I'll, I'll, when I in in the description of the the podcast, I'll pop uh, Kodak's uh, name into it. So so how did that? I mean, I I realized okay. I didn't have that storyline. Cool. So how did that happen? Uh, so yeah, when I when I came back from Iraq, that's when I got the job at the UN. I spent uh, my time in uh, Khartoum, and then when I when I ended my contract with the uh, with the UN, I timed my exit so that uh, the first day I wake up back in South Africa is my birthday. So that would have been five September two thousand and nine. First day I wake up back uh, in my bed here at my parents' place, uh, and I wake up because their dogs are going ballistic at their gate. So I get up and I go and check what's going on. And outside our gate sits this little puppy. And I mean, she was full of ticks and fleas and mud and starving or whatever, but she was literally just sitting outside our gate. So Kodak came to me on my birthday, 2009, and we've been inseparable since. Uh, but the story that you're alluding to is um, 2018. Uh, a journalist friend of mine was doing a story for one of the women's magazines, one of the local magazines, and the story angle was people and their pets and how their pets help them in their lives. So she interviewed me and asked me about Kodak uh, because over the period of about six years, exactly this period that we're talking about when I wasn't working anymore and my, my PTSD became debilitating, uh, I was suicidal about five times. And each time Kodak was there and, uh, you know, I, I know it's going to sound so flippant, corny and dramatic, but, you know, she would literally be licking the tears out of my eyes and I would decide by myself that I cannot abandon Kodak like she was abandoned as a baby or, you know, as a puppy. Kodak fucking rude, so, dude. <laughs> Uh, the thing is, uh, uh, she literally saved my life a couple of times, but then uh, two, 2018, after this uh, uh, interview, in which I said exactly what I'm telling you now, I realized that my parents, if my mom ever had to read that article, she will shit her pants, you know, she will completely freak <laughs> out. And, and of course, that, that happens, my mom reads the article, they do freak out, and that's when my dad said to me, because make no mistake, this is beginning of January 2019, I was suicidal again. Uh, and if I can just also add this, a friend of mine said to me a while ago that, um, you know, I never really wanted to commit suicide because I used Kodak as an excuse not to do it. And I said to him, you know what, uh, that might actually be true. Uh, in my opinion, it's not, but it might actually be true. But in end of 2018, my thought pattern had changed where I was saying to myself, Kodak will be better off without me instead of, you know, I can't abandon her. So I was in deep trouble, right? Uh, so beginning of January 2019, my dad said to me, listen, they, they realize I really need help now. And uh, that's when he suggested uh, this uh, therapy and treatment option, which is the Ibogaine Center that uh, I'm sure we'll talk, talk about in a, in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So Kodak, again, came to my rescue in the yeah. magazine. Article. That's <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. 
So, so yeah, I, I think um, I, I want to ask, like, what is the difference between just anxiety and depression and PTSD? Like, is it just the more severe case? Like, what? Like, how do, how would one almost like classify? Like, how how do people? I mean, you you mentioned that there's a questionnaire that you can fill in to know. Like, what what is what is PTSD? Okay, so you know what? So one of the th things about PTSD is that it it can be a little bit difficult to uh, diagnose uh, because there is a lot of overlap between somebody that suffered trauma and somebody that suffers from PTSD. Because I think it's also uh, interesting to note that, uh, and the, the statistic that I'm going to give to you now is one from the States, but only 8% of people who suffer trauma go on to develop PTSD. Yeah. So PTSD is, uh, if I can give a, a sort of a definition, uh, it's when you witness or experience a traumatic event or when you witness or experience multiple traumatic events over a prolonged period of time. And you then develop uh, the, the trauma response uh, symptoms, but these pr uh, progress and they become worse and they continue for longer than six months. Then that is PTSD. And it is more or less what you said, you know, PTSD would be just a more severe form of trauma, but it would be debilitating. Yeah. In other words, you know, uh, just as an example, somebody would be driving in traffic and hear uh, exhaust, you know, bang, and it, it would have an immediate flashback to a traumatic event. It's as if they are reliving the traumatic event and he would crash his car or jump out of the car and, you know, go hide under a, you know, a bench or something like that. That is when it is so severe that it becomes debilitating, completely debilitates your life. And, and, and when, when you were at the stage, you're self-isolating. Are you thinking in your mind, I'm okay if I just stay here? Or are you realizing I'm in deep shit? Did you... Did it, did it dawn on you at a certain stage that sure. this is big? Yeah. Well, let me also say this. Uh, in 2011, it was sort of towards the end of 2011 when uh, things really started to sort of, you know, wheels started coming off for me. Uh, it wasn't as bad, but, uh, you know, I was isolating then already. You know, I sometimes when I was freelancing, I would just, you know, say no to jobs. Or when somebody asked me if I can do a job, I would say I'm busy. And I would just stay at home because I couldn't face going out into this world. Uh, so what happened is uh, the my girlfriend at the time dumped me. Uh, and I mean, good on her because I was, you know, <laughs> you couldn't live with me. <laughs> but anyway, then uh, I realized, listen, I, I need to start doing something. I need to help myself. And I started to go for counseling again, uh, which did not help me at all. Not one little bit. Uh, I think uh, the counselor at that stage was uh, still maybe a bit new in the, you know, industry or doing, you know, working in mental health. Uh, I also always had to pay cash. I never got an invoice. So I think it was a bit of a tax write-off. Uh, so anyway, but yeah, the counseling never helped me. Uh, I quickly stopped that. Then I went on to antidepressants, which uh, I mean, if you're going to allow me to, to rant a bit, antidepressants for fuck's sakes, man. Uh, you know what? I think there's a place for antidepressants for sure. Uh, it, it has a very specific role. And uh, if it is prescribed for that specific role in the right way, it will help people. That's what I believe. But I also believe that, uh, you know, like I did, I just went to my GP uh, who diagnosed me again with PTSD. Uh, and according to law in this country, only a mental health professional, like a psychologist is allowed to diagnose you with a mental health issue, right? 
anyway, my GP, and also I didn't tell my GP I had the previous diagnosis. I kept quiet about it. I was just saying I'm feeling depressed. Uh, diagnosed me with PTSD, coined me with antidepressants. I took that for about, I think it was about six months, uh, in which time obviously the fog does lift a bit and you can see around you and you can operate a bit better. But then after a while, you know, the shit starts surfacing again because why? The, the core issue was never addressed. Yeah. And if you, if you give me pills and you say, you know what, take these pills, but you also have to go see this therapist there's a chance that you feel better and you're in a better space to handle therapy. So the core issue gets addressed and you know what, it's a happy ending. But if you just throw me with pills and six months later, I say to you, you know what, I'm starting to feel you know, like shit again. And you say, don't worry, we're just going to up the dose or we're going to change the meds and we're going to try another little cocktail of pills. You know, I very quickly realized I'm going to be on this stuff for the rest of my life. Yeah. So that's when I, well, in my stupidity, I just uh, went cold turkey overnight and stopped taking the antidepressants. And I quickly realized that that is actually a very dangerous thing to do. You should uh, have a, a weaning sort of period. We just slowly but surely start taking less and less and less. So eventually I did that. And then I started looking around for alternatives uh, to help me. Uh, I read in a book, it's a, a guy by the name of Graham Hancock wrote a book called Supernatural in which he does a whole bunch of psychedelics. Uh, and one of these is Ibogaine. And I read about his experience on Ibogaine and I read up about Ibogaine and I realized that it is actually used in a clinical way. Uh, in other words, it is a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Uh, I, I have to stress that I'm not talking about uh, some, you know, shamanic, you know, journey somewhere with, uh, you know, a light healer or whatever. I'm talking yourself. specifically. Yeah, exactly. You know what? There's this place for that as well. But I am talking about therapy, clinical psychology combined with taking ibogaine. Yeah. Uh, to make a long story short, I really wanted to do it back then. I found a, a place in South Africa. I emailed them a bunch of questions. And it just turned out that it was way too expensive for somebody like me who wasn't working to, to do it back then. So then I opted to do an ayahuasca journey. And this was exactly what I was saying. It was a very sort of uh, shamanic, uh, uh, you know, ritualistic sort of uh, spiritual, let's call it a psycho-spiritual experience, like a weekend away at a yoga retreat. Uh, we did this, the ayahuasca and San Pedro. And... Uh, to be honest, uh, I, you know, I won't bore you with the details of all of the visuals I saw in my head and all of that. It did help me for like, I don't know, a good two months or three months, the same as the antidepressants. But because the core issue was never addressed, you know, I am, uh, you know, bless the guy who did that ceremony. He was such a sweet man. Uh, Jacques was his name. A really, a really sweet, sweet guy. But he is not a psychologist and he could not help me with my mental health disorder that I suffer from. So uh, at the end, the ayahuasca journey did nothing for, for me, you know, uh, and I think then uh, it's a very dangerous place that you get to where, you know, you, you, you have the hope that something will help you. So you're willing to try anything. Mm. And then you try a whole bunch of things and nothing helps. And then you get to a place where the, the disappointment when something that you try does not help, the, the, the fear that the disappointment is going to crush you again becomes larger than the hope that something's going to help you. You understand? So you get to this place where you actually don't want to try anything anymore uh, because you've, you're afraid that if it doesn't work, you're going to kill yourself. So that's where you're in that sort of uh, self-harm, you know, sort of uh, uh, space. So it's a very dangerous space to be in. Uh, um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm blabbering on. No, 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 no. That's I mean that that's that's what I want to hear about because that's the journey that you you took, yeah. and then uh, but then you ended up at a place where your father said to you like, you need yes, help. Yeah. So we want to get. Yeah. So, wait, wait, maybe. Yeah. Let's talk. What is ibogaine? It's a so ibogaine is a dissociative uh, and it's an entheogen, uh, and uh, in fact there was a guy called. Uh, um, Howard Lotsoff, who was a heroin addict uh, man, I think it was in the 60s. And he purely by chance found uh, ibogaine and that if he, if you take ibogaine, it literally takes away the withdrawals of opiates completely. So, um, and also make no mistake, ibogaine was used, I think in France in the 30s already. Uh, and this is just the Western world we're talking. We're not even talking about the Buiti tribe in Gabon who's been using uh, Iboha for like thousands of years in the you know, their own initiation rituals and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so what ibogaine does is um, if you take ibogaine, uh, it will put you in like a bit, uh, eight to 10 or 12 hour sort of uh, altered state of consciousness where you have literally these visions in your head about your life or, you know, it, it, well, it can be very direct or it can be very metaphorical, but it's always sort of like a vision about the issue that you're dealing with. Uh, and at the same time, while you are in this sort of, you know, uh, altered state of consciousness on a physiological level, uh, ibogaine resets neural pathways, uh, it regenerates synapses, it's a, it's a very strong detoxification agent. So there's on a physiological level, there's a lot happening in your body and, and specifically in your brain, uh, while you are still also going through this sort of visionary stage. Um, and then what happens is after you get out of this stage, uh, you know, the day after treatment, we call it gray day because you really feel like shit, you know, you feel like you want to die and it's just oh, so weak and, you know, uh, nauseous and all that. Uh, but then when you wake up on the Wednesday, you feel like a million bucks because you literally, I mean, you don't have a new brain, but you have a rebooted brain. And when you're in that state, that puts you in the prime, prime position to start therapy. Uh, because you know what, I think a lot of the issue around uh, 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 clinical psychology therapy is you have to talk to a patient over a course of, let's say, two, three years, and only after that period of time, the patient in himself or herself actually gets to the, you know, like digs down into themselves and then only discovers what the core issues are where when you take ibogaine, it brings those issues right to the surface immediately. Uh, so they, they do call ibogaine two years worth of therapy in a night. Uh, and it's, I, I, I can be the example to say that that is so true because it just brings all of these things that you've been repressing and suppressing and pressed down into your gut over a number of years. It just brings it straight to the surface. And the other thing is because it's a dissociative, you can look at your trauma without that extreme anxiety or fear or anger or whatever that normally attaches to the trauma. In, in other words, if you normally sit and chat to a therapist or even just your parents or your friends, and they ask you about your trauma, trauma that you went through, your traumatic event, you actually don't want to talk about it. You don't want to think about it. You don't ever want to you know, remember it. Because if you do remember it, it causes anxiety or it causes fear or you get angry or you, know, you, you just you blow up. So when you do ibogaine, uh, it takes that emotion out of the equation. So you can literally, for the first time, for me, it was the first time in flipping, you know, I don't know, 12 years that I could look at certain traumatic events in my life for the first time and just look at it and, you know, analyze it and think about it, talk about it. And when you are able to do that, it takes away so much of that power 
that the trauma holds over you, uh, you know, that, and that that's the reason why you try and suppress it, if that makes sense. If you look back at that day now, do you feel it was a spiritual experience in the sense that we know spiritual experience? Or do you think, oh, my brain was rewiring itself? Or like, what do you think? Sure. Well, if I can answer that question in this way, uh, I think my spiritual experience started even before I did the Ibogaine. Uh, because make no mistake, uh, I was I was not a spiritual person at all, uh, you know, in these years that I lived in that very dark space. You know, at, at one stage, I believed that there is a God uh, or a higher being, but I believe that this higher being is a malicious being and that it loved sort of like grinding us down, like giving us, you know, like fucking up our lives if you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then afterwards i realized that you know we are such small insignificant creatures that you know no higher being is going to take the time out of his day or her day to to ruin our lives so then i realized but there's actually nothing out there and that to me was actually worse because it just sort of isolates you even more you know yeah. i'm i'm completely alone in this universe and it is such a bad negative place and i hate everybody i hate myself i i believe for a long time that this realm that we live in is a prison and the only way out of the prison is to kill yourself. So then um, when I, uh, well, if we can just go back a little bit to when my, uh, my dad said that, you know, he knows these people, it's clients of his, they work with a plant. He reckons that they can help me because they treat people with PTSD specifically. They, I mean, they also treat anxiety, depression, uh, addiction, a whole bunch of things. But one of the things I treat specifically is post-traumatic stress disorder. So my first, first reaction was that my dad is lying to me because the place that he was talking about was exactly the same place that I emailed all those years before to ask questions. So, and I mean, I was so paranoid that he literally had to show me emails, you know, between him and, and, and the one person there to say, look, they, he's speaking the truth. So in that moment, I felt this feeling that, you know what, it's the universe is sending you a message here that you need to go to this place. And of course, in that moment, I didn't realize that I'm having a spiritual moment, <laughs> but it, that is the way I look at it now is very much, you know, that I keep saying it's the universe drops these breadcrumbs. And as long as I follow the breadcrumbs, I know I'm on the right path. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, my dad organized a meeting with the clinical psychologist who, who owns and runs the place. We did a, a session with her and I was in tears. I, I went with my dad and for the first time I was sitting with my dad and I literally told people, you know what, I suffer from PTSD. So I was just bawling my eyes out. And I mean, I think my, my dad was a bit shell shocked. Uh, I mean, but I think my dad got PTSD just from that little yeah, session, you know, you. to know what the, you know, what the extent of my problems really was, you know. Um, anyway, I think it was a week or two weeks after that session, I went on the Monday lunchtime-ish and I booked in for the, the treatment is a week long. Uh, and I met one of the other therapists there for the first time. And she was also asking me about my life and you know, I'm talking away. And at one stage she stopped and she said, no, 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 just hang on. The coincidences are now way too big because her dad's name was also Yuan and he also worked for the UN and also for the UN in Sudan at a certain stage. So even then I felt this huge calm come over me because I realized it's the universe telling me, dude, you're at the right place, trust this process, you're gonna be okay. And uh, th that very night is when I did my Ibogaine and it saved my life. I, I, again, I know that it sounds so dramatic, but Ibogaine saved my life. If that I is... didn't do that treatment that night, I was going to kill myself. That's it. That's two mm. years now about, right? Uh, yeah, just, uh, it was February, beginning of February last year. So yeah, it's what, a year and a half more or less? Yeah. 
And um, I can say to you that I've never been in better mental space in my life ever. Yeah. I am doing really well. Yeah. Um, but obviously, like you said, it has to go hand in hand with treatment. So what did that you, you had the, the Ibogaine experience and then there's a what a clinical psychologist. How does how does that work? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as I said, you do the, the Ibogaine treatment on the Monday night. So that goes into the like the Tuesday morning. Tuesday, you just need to get through the day. And then on the Wednesday morning, that is when the uh, therapy starts. So then you have sessions with clinical psychologists, uh, therapists, transpersonal psychologists. And there's this whole team of uh, facilitators around uh, who are sort of between therapy sessions because the, the one thing that happens is after Ibogaine and all of these things, you know, your trauma or whatever it is comes to the surface, man, you just want to talk, you know, like previously, you don't want to tell anybody. Now it's the opposite. You just, you can't keep your mouth shut. You just want to tell everybody. You just want to get it out of you, you know? So there's the, a whole team of facilitators that also are around to, to just keep, remind you that you are in a safe space and you can talk about anything that you want to. Uh, and then, you know, sort of guide you into the various therapy sessions as the week progresses. Um, so Ibogaine is legal in South Africa at the moment. Correct, yes. The one thing that I do want to add on to is because I know that there is, there is a lot of misinformation about Ibogaine uh, out in, you know, out in the world. And I do know that, look, make no mistake, there has been deaths on Ibogaine, Ibogaine, uh, you can die while taking ibogaine. Uh, so there's also some people out there that you know they maybe administer the ibogaine, you know, just like willy nilly or fly by night type guys. So if you ever are interested in doing ibogaine, you should ask specific questions. Uh, one of the questions I I would recommend is ask if the clinic or wherever you want to go uh, work according to the Global Ibogaine Alliance protocols. There's globally, there's a whole bunch of clinics uh, around the globe that have joined up and they uh, made a protocol that is safe for people to use. And as part of the protocol, for instance, you have to have a medical doctor on staff. Uh, the, the center that I was at has a medical doctor. You do a, a screening of the heart, you do an ECG, uh, you do a kidney and liver blood function test. Uh, it's like all of these sort of things that are in place. Uh, another thing is that when you do the treatment, so make sure that you are monitored 24 hours a day. The people that monitor you, they do have like, a, you know, emergency medical, you know, like CPR sort of stuff. Um, and then the other thing is the way that the ibogaine must be administered must also be, you know, in safe parameters. So all of these sort of things need to be in place. Uh, I would suggest that if you ever decide to do that, make sure, ask these questions and make sure that it's a reputable place as you go to. And it's not just some guy, you know, throwing you a ibogaine in his backyard, you know what I mean? Telling you you'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. Do you think someone can, um, I use this term very lightly, get over or manage to, to um, be healed? I don't know what the correct term is, but can get to a place of normal life be healed of ptsd uh through therapy at all do you think that i'm talking no 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 um i again or the joe rogan dmt or whatever you know yeah uh look i think uh, that i think that uh, there are eight billion people on this planet and there are eight billion different ways to act react feel you know so i think there's no one size fits all sort of treatment or therapy for any of these mental health disorders. 
Um, I think uh, to a large extent, if somebody wants to be helped, then they will get help. Uh, obviously, it also depends on the connection that you have with your therapist. Uh, you know, do you trust your therapist enough to completely open up? Um, and it takes time. I mean, uh, as I said, to, to get to the root causes. I mean, I did my ibogaine for a very specific reason for my PTSD, and it helped me for my PTSD. Yeah. But after my ibogaine, it took months of therapy to dig deeper, to figure out exactly what we were talking about earlier. You know, as a young kid, I moved around so much. I had such bad, low self-esteem that it affected all of the decisions and the person that I was for so many years. And I mean, it put me into a job that made me sick. And, uh, you know, I only realized that years and years later that if I could address my slow self-esteem as a child, my life would have been completely different. Uh, at the same time, I do also believe that I had to go through every single thing that I went through in my life to be the person that I am sitting here right now talking to you. I have to have had all of those experiences to have the insight and, you know, and the empathy and compassion that I have now that I maybe wouldn't have had. I might have had a happier life or, you know, I don't know, a better life. Who knows? I would have been a different person. So I had to go through all of those things to be this person that I'm now. But what I'm trying to say is that there was definite things from my childhood that influenced all of the choices and decisions and the person that I was up until this moment. Yeah. So um, I think that therapy can help everybody, anybody, as yeah. long as you want to be helped. Yeah. I do think that a combination of uh, types of therapy might be useful. Uh, but I firmly believe that whatever resonates with you is the way that you need to, that's the path you need to walk. Yeah. So if, for instance, uh, for, for PTSD, for instance, there are various types of treatments like EMDR, which is eye movement treatment, kinesiology, TRE, talk therapy, hypnotherapy. There's like a whole range of different things. And you know what, one of them might work for you that, and it might not work for somebody else. And maybe a combination of two or three of those works perfectly for you. You know, I think it's very much a journey. It's very much a process. And you need to just realize that because it's a process, I'm not going to be, you know, better overnight. I'm not going to be healed, you know, like in six months, there's no time frame to healing. It is literally a constant process. If you, if you, if you realize that, I think then you're already well on your way you you stopped shooting you're not a photographer anymore um but you're actually working at, at that center now you're like the yeah what do you call your job description okay uh, yeah i'm a facilitator at at the very same center that saved my life <laughs> um yeah i haven't touched cameras since 2012 um i never had a I think I'm fortunate in that sense that for my PTSD, I never had extreme triggers. Like a lot of people have triggers. I never had extreme triggers, but I did not touch a camera uh, in all of these years. Um, and I don't think it's just necessarily the camera. It's just, you know, that whole life that I, that I left behind then. I think uh, obviously now I know that I never should have done that job, but when, when I finally left the industry, it was sort of like a sense of relief. So, you know, I put, Put the cameras away and i never picked them up again um and yeah so a couple of months after my treatment at the center it's also random how that happened i was uh, building furniture at some stage and they asked me to make a piece of furniture for the reception area 
So I had to pop into the center a couple of times to do measurements and stuff like that. And every time that I was there, I would wind up sitting on the, on the veranda with some of the patients and just chatting to them and sort of like, you know, sharing from my experience. And, and uh, yes, yeah, I just, I, I could feel that I could connect with people that are there for trauma. Uh, so, I mean, obviously you connect with, you know, other people as well. There are people suffering with addiction. There are people suffering from something else. But everybody that was there specifically for trauma, I felt that I could connect with those people so well and, you know, like share some of my story and, you know, they share. And it just, I, I don't know, somebody maybe overheard or something and they asked me if I would like to volunteer there at some stage. And the volunteering became something a little bit more permanent and a little bit more permanent. And now basically I work there every week as a facilitator just to sort of, you know, chat to the patients. And then, but you, when did you start? So you started PTSDSA. Like, when did that happen? Uh, After so, so that were helped by them, how did... Yeah, so, so how that happened is that uh, I think it was about three months, four months after I did my treatment, uh, as one of the things that I really felt inside myself I, I need to do is to do a public speaking event. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, not a TED talk, but, you know, something like that. And my initial thought was that I want to invite my friends and family to this talk because that would literally be the first time ever that I would be able to tell them what happened to me, what, what I went through, why I was the way I was, you know, why they didn't see me in so many years or, you know, why I was always so angry or something like that, right? Um, and then the one therapist at the center, uh, Karen Matthews, uh, we started chatting and, uh, she, you know, we figured out that it might actually be a very useful informational talk where we can invite the public as well because uh, Karen did an introduction and she talked about the use of psychedelics in treating mental health disorder and then I shared my story with about PTSD. So in the end we got like a, a venue sponsored and you know I had like a whole video and slideshow and it, it really turned out so well uh, but for me just personally that that step that I took by sharing my personal journey with a group of friends and family and strangers was, uh, you know, I think it'll, it'll be hard for me to tell you how healing that moment was. So in that moment, I realized that if I can, you know, use some sort of platform and help other people that like me live in that very dark place, or, you know, they would live in that place now, I was there. The, there are three things. You feel that you are alone all these emotions and things in your head, you feel it's not valid. It's just bullshit and nobody's going to believe you or understand. And you feel that there is no way that you will ever get help. So the only way to end this is to kill yourself. Mm. I realized very quickly that those three, just those three core messages can help people. Yeah. And that's when I started looking around online to see if there is like a support group for PTSD in South Africa. And I found that there isn't. Uh, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, who, and make no mistake, those people are brilliant. They do such great work. On their website, there is like a little link for PTSD and some information and stuff like that. But in my mind, PTSD is such a unique mental health disorder that you, you need a very unique, dedicated support group, if I can call it that. Uh, and that's when I decided, you know what, I'm just going to start one myself. And uh, I built like a little slapdash website and I created a Facebook group and uh, I never advertised anywhere, but people started, I don't know how, but people just started coming through, through the, you know, 
through the ether they found me and I started exchanging messages with people. Uh, I was able to you know, connect people with certain psychologists. I connected people with certain uh, EMDR practitioners. Uh, there were even some people who came through the group that decided to do Ibogaine. So there's like, the way I look at the group is that I, I am sitting on certain information that I think is very valuable to people that struggle with trauma or PTSD, specifically PTSD, obviously. And if somebody contacts me, just the fact that I can tell you, you know what, dude, you're not alone. I know exactly where you are. These things that you're talking about, you know, that's hyper irritability and you just, you hate the world and you just self-isolate in your room all day. You don't want to work. I know exactly where you are. I've been there. I know. And second of all, you know what, you, you have these feelings, but when you talk about it to your wife, she's, she just says, you know what, get over it or, you know, pull your socks up and get yourself together. Dude, your feelings are valid. You know, yeah. the fact that you don't want to get up today to go to work, even though you have children that needs food on the table, now everybody's on your back, you know, you're such a weak arsehole or whatever. Dude, you suffer from a mental health disorder. You don't have all of the, the power over it. I understand. Thirdly, I do need to tell you that there is a way to get help. You not, You don't have to be like this for the rest of your life or kill yourself to get out of this situation. There are ways and means to get you on a journey of healing. Yeah. And for me, just to get that message out, I mean, again, I don't want to talk from a place of ego. I don't want to sound like that. It's just that I do find a lot of uh, um, the worth in being able to help other people that's in the exact same spot that I used to be in. Yeah. It makes sense to me, man. It makes sense to me. And um, I don't know... Would you say there's more men contacting you than women? Or because uh, men to be really honest, uh, Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I think that it is a bit of a mix, but I have been surprised with uh, how many people do contact me. As I said, I haven't even advertised the, the group anyway. It's, it's just I post a couple of things on Facebook once in a while and people just start messaging me. Um, but I, I think that is something else I do want to say is that a lot of people think asking for help is a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. And I disagree completely. It takes a very, very, very brave person to ask for help. Mm -hmm. So if you if you ask for help, dude, you're not, it's not a sign of weakness. Yeah, for sure. you, should be, you should be proud of yourself just for being able to ask for help just as a start, you know? Yeah. That reaching out is a, is a very healing thing. I think so too, because... Um... Asking for help is, is very embarrassing. And I think embarrassment is one of the biggest fears out there. Because um, okay. uh, it, it includes a lot of stuff like vulnerability and, and you know, all these things. And, and a lot of people find it very embarrassing. And that's why, for me, I think it was hard. Like, you feel like you're a weakling, you know? Um, okay. But once you get over that, or once I got over that, I realized that, it doesn't matter that these things don't matter at the end of the day you're a stronger person so um sure and at the end of the day every single person out there that you think that that you that you are that you are also struggling with their own shit you know yeah. so they might be embarrassed to to ask for help uh, from you you know so if if all of us can just get over that and also the other thing about vulnerability is as soon as you make yourself vulnerable you actually uh, there's a freedom on the other side of that vulnerability because you know what if you if you ask for help and you put make yourself vulnerable what, what do you think is going to happen you know if, okay so what if somebody laughs at you well fuck them you know i'm i'm asking for help so if you make fun of me and you can't help me okay fuck you i'll 
get the help from somebody else and just keep asking and asking and asking. Yeah. And you'll be surprised when you do ask for help. People on, I would say 99% of the time, they are so willing to help you. It's just that most people don't know how. Yeah. It doesn't make them bad people. It's just that they don't know how. Yeah. So it's literally just to find the correct person to help you in the correct way. Yeah, I think that's why institutions like the one where you're at or um, uh, a, a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or seeing a professional person in whatever way is is yeah. super important because they're supposed to be trained to help you and and um, uh, finding the right person because I've seen um, a psychologist and then I think this guy is not gonna or this woman is not gonna help me at all like I've I, I've figured out more what's going on with me than they they seem to know and but and and they're not giving up at that stage going then and saying well let me fish around till I find the right person who I can connect with and who understands the problems yes. and who can communicate with me yeah. and that's how you start the journey and because just because someone has a psychology degree doesn't mean mean they're they're the best person for the job um and I, think that's I, I agree with you yeah I, I agree i think this is a very important point is that if you get to that point where you need to ask for help and you go and see a psychologist and you don't connect with that person don't stop do not stop them keep going go, you know even if you go to flip and five ten psychologists you are going to connect with somebody at some stage because human beings are all different you are not you know we're not you're not mates with everybody you know, it takes a while before you really connect with somebody and you become friends, right? Yeah. I'm not saying that you, you're not going to become friends with your psychologist, but it takes time to find that one person that you really connect with. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it does take time. It does take different psychologists uh, or different treatment or therapy options, whatever. But just don't stop. That's the main thing. Don't stop. Yeah. Keep going. I think that's actually a good place to, to stop. Um, to stop. <laughs> <laughs> cool um, man so yeah Johan, thanks man that's i think uh, it will help people i hope so thanks for being willing that's to share fun. all that tough stuff man <laughs> dude um cool. despite everything that 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 photography did or didn't do for you um i really admire what you did in any case <laughs> i know you don't want to maybe hear that now and the the photography is 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 really amazing and and um uh, but I think what's what's awesome is just like the journey that you've been through and going through that super dark place and now being at a place where um, um, obviously the stories like like the story of the girl and stuff affect you. But most people, when they talk about trauma, like it's really bad for them. But you're sitting here and you're, you're almost positive about it. You're like, I can change it. Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I really appreciate everything you're saying. I, I really take that on in my heart. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. But yes, you, you're right. I am at a place now where I am able to talk about my trauma and think about it and share those experiences uh, without that sort of debilitating emotional connection that I used to have to it. Uh, and I think it is important just to, before we go to also just mention that uh, PTSD, my PTSD will never go away. I will always, I, I am living with PTSD. Yeah. Uh, so they are like small little triggers, like uh, just a, a, as an example, I never answer my phone. When my phone rings, I have a, a small little trigger. And the reason is that 99% of the trauma that I experienced in my life always started with a phone call. Like, you know, the crime reporter calling you to say, let's go out on a job or whatever. 
so now I never answer my call, my, my phone. I, I, if somebody prearranges a, a call with me, that's cool because I know at one o'clock somebody's going to call me and I, I'm expecting. Yeah. But because I know that these are my triggers, they're not debilitating anymore. So even now, just talking about this now, you know, sometimes my phone lately does ring and I actually answer. And yeah. nine times out of ten, it's a telemarketer, but that doesn't matter. It's like I am I'm oh, finding good. that. <laughs> I'm going back into treatment and therapy, you asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think the thing that I find is because I now know the physiological and psychological reasons of all of these things, the, the power that it has over me is slowly but surely diminishing. Yeah. And, and I find that fascinating. So, you know, again, I might, you know, maybe I'll never answer my phone until I die one day. Or maybe, you know what, next year, I don't mind. My phone rings and maybe I have that little spurt of adrenaline and cortisol in my mind but or in my body. But it doesn't matter because it's just a split second and it's, and it's gone. Yeah. So I find that fascinating. The I think also just the more you research your own mental health disorder and the more you, you find out what the physiological effects are and the psychological effects and what, the, what happens to your brain yeah. physically, the, the more you research and you figure out what's going on in yourself, the less the power it has over you. Okay, so I'm not going to let you go just yet. Five more minutes. Oh, um, for me, <laughs> cool. reading about anxiety was really helpful because you realize yeah. I realize it's a thing. Um, yeah, not I'm not abnormal, and I could I could also associate with people who had it, and I could talk them through it and go like, "Listen, man, this is probably going to last five or ten minutes, and you'll be okay." Um, yeah, and realizing what it does to your body. You did mention that that. Um, uh, there's chemical reactions um, and and health reactions to PTSD for some people. Um, yes. you, you said you also had some like medical stuff happening um, that you had to be yeah. aware of. Yeah. So if one of the big things about post-traumatic stress disorder is somebody that suffers from PTSD will constantly be in that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mode. Uh, which means that, you know, and again, when you are in a dangerous situation, your body reacts that way. Adrenaline cortisol gets secreted. Uh, cortisol, just for those who don't know, that's the stress hormone. So you will have these things being secreted into your body for a very specific reason. You know, you have adrenaline. Uh, so if you're in a dangerous situation, now, if, if it's possible to run away, you're going to run away at the top speed, you know, like you've never run that fast ever in your life, right? But if you have PTSD, you are constantly in that mode. So way too much adrenaline and cortisol gets secreted into your body over a long period of time, like even years, right? And that has a very uh, negative uh, physiological effect on the body and specifically the brain. Uh, like, for instance, the amygdala and the hippocampus in the brain deteriorates because of that. Uh, and just as an example, uh, memory gets affected. Uh, the way that you uh, store memories and the way that you retrieve memories get affected. Like my mem memory is really bad uh, the last couple of years. Uh, the other thing is, uh, and this is not like a very direct link, it's all sort of like up in the air, but uh, too much adrenaline and cortisol has also been linked to autoimmune illnesses. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2007, in 2008 I was diagnosed with lupus. So there is a very strong and very real physiological effect in the body when you suffer from PTSD. And I think that is one of the other things that uh, should actually motivate people. If you think you suffer from PTSD, ask for help, because the sooner you get help, the less severe the, the uh, implications uh, on you is going to be physiologically. 
are you are you following any specific like health regimes uh, like are you drinking a bunch of vitamins is there something you believe in uh what, well, what i mean big way or are you like yeah. barbecue and beer is that your 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 cure what, what are you doing uh well i i just have to qualify i am 47 years old right? so <laughs> I, i am probably, <laughs> i probably have to take some supplement somewhere at some stage um but no i i have been on a specific diet for my lupus uh, since 2017 uh, i'm so fortunate to have a wonderful dietitian who specializes in autoimmune illnesses in my family so she's been helping me tremendously uh, she's based in pretoria yeah. um but other than that uh, not not really i i, I don't take any med other medication for my uh, uh, lupus uh, there's no medication that i take for ptsd obviously uh, so no I, i do tend to stay away from alcohol uh, i think alcohol if you are let's let's just be clear if you are suffering from ptsd and you are in a very dark place a combination of alcohol is just going to exacerbate a lot of negative uh, outcomes okay. so yeah but at the same time i also do realize that when you are in the dark place you do want to escape or avoid so alcohol is one way to do that yeah, but right. yeah you people need to be very very careful uh, of alcohol uh, when they are suffering from trauma or ptsd yeah. Uh, so yeah i i tend to stay away from alcohol i mean obviously once in a while a beer still you know tastes delicious but i don't go on benders or anything like that uh, like i used to you know while i was still working you know So diet is basically your your medication, a specific diet at this moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I'm gonna stop it there, man. Sure. Thank you very awesome. much. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, that Thank was you awesome. Really appreciate that. Yeah. Cheers, Joachim. Keep going. Bye.